This past year, Super Bowl 50 was won by the Denver Broncos. It was the final chapter in the storybook career of their quarterback, Peyton Manning. After the big win, Manning retired. He went out on top, as they like to say. But his career might not have ended so successfully had it not been for a decision that he made four years earlier. In 2012, Manning suffered a serious neck injury, and his previous team felt it would probably end his career. He was released by the Indianapolis Colts. At the time, Peyton was contacted by his former coach, David Cutcliffe. Coach Cut had tutored Manning while he was in college at Tennessee. Cutcliffe had been watching tape, as football coaches do. And he saw that Peyton had developed some bad habits in his mechanics. He was out of sync. His throwing motion had become skewed. Cutcliffe invited Peyton to work with him in the offseason and to go back to the basics. He helped Manning recapture the skills that made him a great quarterback. It was by returning to the fundamentals that old number 18 was able to finish his career on such a high note. And this is what had happened in the church at Corinth. Coach Paul had noticed that the believers in Corinth had gotten away from the correct fundamentals. It was distorting their faith. It was contorting their living. The Corinthians had such an all-star beginning. They left the darkness of paganism for the glorious light of Jesus Christ. But Paul had been watching. And he knew that they were drifting from the fundamentals Even that of the resurrection, false notions, wrong attitudes were creeping in. If the Corinthians wanted to go out on top, if they had any hope of finishing well, they needed to go back to the basics of their faith. And this is what Paul does at the beginning of chapter 15. He recounts to them the gospel, the good news he had preached, the good news they had believed and had received. In verses 1 and 2, he stresses the gospel's importance. In verses 3 through 8, he lists the gospel's ingredients. Then in verses 9 through 11, Paul testifies to the gospel's impact, especially in his own life. Its importance, its ingredients, and its impact. You see, God wants you to finish well. When you leave this world, when you retire into eternity... God wants you to go out on top. That's why we too need to go back to the basics. Don't think that a return to the fundamentals is a sign of failure. In reality, it just might be the path to ultimate success. Well, verses 1 and 2 stress the gospel's importance. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. Paul preached the gospel. The Corinthians believed the gospel. It saves. And on it, Christians take a stand. If you live another thousand years from now, you'll never hear better news than the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice it was through the gospel that the Corinthians had been saved. And what does this word mean? What does it mean to be saved? You save money for a rainy day. 
A friend saves you a seat or a place in line. The lifeguard saves a person from drowning. Early detection can save you from serious disease. But what does it mean to be saved by the gospel? Well, first, understand the danger that all of us are in. God created this world perfect, but things are not the way He meant for them to be. People hurt other people. Folks are treated cruelly. Life is full of injustice. Hey, if life is to be fair and good and perfect, then the evil people need to be eliminated. And I'm sure you agree. Let's wipe out all those evil people. Here's the only problem. We are the evil people. You and I are evil. There's evil in our hearts. The selfishness and greed and pride and meanness I abhor in others, I harbor in my own heart. I may not act on it, but even when I don't, it's there lurking. The Bible calls it sin. And it is from sin that we need to be saved. This is why we need the gospel. Medicine saves us from sickness. Counseling saves us from neurosis. Government saves us from anarchy, or at least I I used to think so. (laughs) Economics saves us from inflation. Ecology saves us from pollution. Law enforcement saves us from crime. But all the above is the result of mankind's sin. And there is only one thing that can save us from sin, and that is the gospel. Only God can say with finality, you are forgiven. And because Jesus is God, He can pardon our sin and cleanse its stain and relieve its guilt and remove its shame and redeem the damage that it's done. This is the gospel that He's made a way to do just that. And this is what makes the gospel unique and special and so vitally important. You know, some folks, they give the gospel only a casual interest or maybe a passing fancy. But the gospel deserves so much more than that. Paul says, you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. Jesus is God's son. But in a sense, the gospel is more like God's daughter. I have a daughter. And I knew boys would flirt with her. Like her mother, she is really pretty. But I also knew that she deserves far more than a young man's flirtations. Before I gave my daughter away, I expected her husband-to-be to have some serious, lifelong, thoroughly committed intentions. And this is God's expectation for anyone who receives the gospel. Lots of people flirt with the gospel. Oh, they tease and show some interest. They say stuff and make promises they really don't plan to keep. The gospel deserves better. God expects you not only to believe and to receive, but to hold fast to the gospel for a lifetime. Paul says that saving faith is a sticky faith. If you really believe the gospel, you'll cling to it and continue in it. True faith has a tight grip. You'll hold fast. Reminds me of a Monday night football game I was watching. It was back in 2008. Deshaun Jackson of the Eagles He slipped past the defense to catch a 61-yard bomb from Donovan McNabb. Jackson glided into the end zone, 
Then he did his TD dance. There was only one problem. In fact, I got the video. He drops back, a long bomb, beautiful catch, touchdown. Ooh, maybe, maybe a touchdown. Let's look at it again. Oops, oops. Deshaun drops the ball before he crosses the goal line. It negated the touchdown. And the moral of the story is, don't drop the ball before you get into the end zone. you got to finish. And this is not only true in football, it's also true in faith. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they need to finish the drill. That it's not enough to just have faith. Real faith is faith that crosses the goal line. It's faith that keeps the gospel to the very end. People often ask me, Pastor Sandy, do you believe in eternal security? Well, here's my answer. Of course, I believe in eternal security. As long as you're trusting in Jesus, you're eternally secure. But the Corinthians were proof having faith today doesn't guarantee faith tomorrow. Hey, a right standing with God has nothing to do with our works. The good we do or don't do. Our status with God rests on our faith in the gospel. But a sincere faith perseveres. It holds fast. This is why Paul implores the Corinthians not to fumble away the gospel. But exactly what is this gospel that the Corinthians believed? The Greek word gospel, it means just simply good news. Before Paul coined the term, it didn't refer to any particular good news. You might consider your kid making good grades or, oh, we're getting an income tax refund to be good news. But that wasn't the gospel that Paul received from God. Neither was the gospel some vague hope that if we do our best, or if we act sincere, or if we try hard to be good, or if we go to church, one day God might usher us into heaven. That might be a wishful optimistic, want-to-believe gospel, a man-made gospel, even a religious-sounding gospel. It's certainly a performance-based gospel. But it wasn't the gospel that Paul received from God. You see, the gospel was a set of real-time facts. God's gospel says, believe in certain events and their spiritual implications, and you'll be saved from your sin. God loves each of us. And He doesn't want us to be eliminated with the evil people. He's provided a way for us to be saved. Paul writes in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. You see, the good news Paul preached wasn't born of his own imagination. It wasn't his own invention. He was just the messenger. Paul passed on to people what God had passed on to him. And here, in these next few verses, he lists the ingredients of the gospel. He begins, that Christ died. Now seldom does good news start with an obituary, a death notice. Hey, I got good news, my best friend died. That sounds strange. But what made the death of Jesus good news was the reason he died. Paul says, Christ died died for our sins. 
Most ancient religions, particularly Judaism, were based on the concept of substitution. That if a person sinned against God, they were deserving of death, but a sacrifice could be offered in the sinner's place. Thousands of animals were slaughtered in the Jewish temple. So much blood was spilled that a pipe was built to drain the river of blood into the valley below. Anyone in Paul's day knew this principle of substitution. Not so much today. Sadly, examples are few and far between. But I did hear one about Dwayne Johnson, a man who lived in Buena Vista, Colorado. Dwayne and his wife, Donna, they took their two teenage girls one day on a hike along a popular trail, not very far from their home. It started out a perfect day. The family walked to the waterfalls at Chalk Creek Canyon, about 14,000 feet. That's when the unthinkable happened. A rock slide came barreling down the mountain. Dwayne, Donna, and his oldest daughter died. But not before Dwayne pushed his 13-year-old Gracie into a crevice in the rock and covered her body with his own. The massive surge of dirt and rocks and boulders crushed his body, but not Gracie. Rescuers heard her from under a pile of debris. A deputy on the scene reported, Gracie said her dad jumped on top of her to protect her right at the last moment when the rocks were coming down. See, here's a modern day example of what Jesus did for the human race. Just as Dwayne saved his daughter by covering her body with his own, Jesus covered us on the cross. He took the beating that our sin deserved. An avalanche of God's judgment was headed toward us. We would have died had Jesus not jumped into harm's way and made Himself a substitute for you and me. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to be made right with God, here is the first truth to believe. Christ died for our sins. And He died according to the Scriptures. By believing this, the Corinthians were acknowledging that the death of Jesus wasn't some random act. It had been planned before time. It had been predicted by God in His Word. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 are just two texts that describe in detail Jesus' crucifixion. It's interesting, details of the cross appear in these texts 500 years before the Persians even invented crucifixion. Leviticus 16 and an elaborate Old Testament sacrificial system also foreshadowed Jesus' suffering on the cross. A vital truth in the gospel that saves is that Jesus' death was according to plan. The cross was no accident. It was no tragedy. The Roman cross was the will of God. Jesus died voluntarily with us in mind. Do we believe that? If we do, it makes His death good news. Well, here's another ingredient of the gospel we believe. And that He was buried. He expresses His faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. But He also says that He was buried. It's interesting to me that His entombment is also part of the gospel. You know, the New Testament goes to great lengths to verify Jesus' death. To confirm it. John chapter 19 tells us that when the Roman soldiers came to Jesus on the cross to break his legs and hasten his death, it was unnecessary. 
they saw that Jesus was already dead. Afterwards, a spear was thrust into his rib cage. Out flowed blood and water, the sure sign of a ruptured heart. John also tells us of his burial. Jesus' corpse was wrapped tightly in linen straps under a hundred pounds of spices. It was placed in an unused tomb owned by a rich aristocrat named Joseph of Arimathea. A large stone was held by a chalk block. When it was time to close the grave, they kicked out the chalk and the stone rolled downhill over the mouth of the tomb. This all meant that the confirmed dead body of Jesus, with the ruptured heart, was buried in a suffocating shroud under a mound of spicy goo in a cold, dark tomb behind an immovable stone. Do you believe in the gospel that Jesus was buried? There are some folks who don't. Doubters suggest that Jesus didn't really die. He just fainted. He swooned. Everyone thought he was dead, but when they laid his body in that cold tomb, the chilly air revived him. Islam was an early perpetrator of this falsehood. In fact, the Quran suggests that Jesus pretended to be dead, that he faked his own death. Other people have suggested Jesus was drugged and just appeared as if he were dead. Again, all this flies in the face of the facts. You tell me, how does a man endure the trauma of torture by professional executioners whose job it was to kill, suffer severe blood loss, a ruptured heart, the suffocation of burial, to awake three days later, free himself from the shroud and spices, walk on impaled feet, pop his shoulders back into joint, tack up his internal organs, and then with heavily damaged hands, move a two-ton stone, fight trained Roman troops, and still be in such good shape to impress his disciples. Now, if you believe that, I've got some beachfront property in Arizona I'd like to sell you. It takes more faith to believe Jesus didn't die and rise again than to believe he did. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Several Old Testament passages predicted Jesus' resurrection. One of the clearest was Psalm 16, verse 10. It's a Messianic prophecy. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus' body was not allowed to decay in the grave. That same body that was crucified was resurrected to new life. Several Old Testament passages even specify the third day. It's mentioned metaphorically at least three times. First was Jonah. As a type of Christ, he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, just as Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Second was the Feast of First Fruits, which occurred three days after Passover. First Fruits was an offering of the initial gleanings of the spring harvest. And God raised Jesus from the dead on that very day. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of God's end time harvest, His resurrection. It was literally a fulfillment of this Old Testament feast. 
And then third, three days elapsed from the time that Abraham committed to sacrifice his son Isaac on top of Mount Moriah until God delivered the boy. Metaphorically, Isaac rose the third day just like Jesus. Realize the gospel states not just that Jesus rose again, but it's specific. He rose again on the third day. This treats the resurrection of Jesus not as some general, common event among redeemed humanity. You can't just say, oh sure, God is going to raise Jesus again at the end of the age when He raises all the other redeemed. No. Jesus' resurrection was unique in the affairs of man. Throughout His ministry, Jesus told His disciples not just that He would rise, but that He would do so on the third day. In essence, He had picked His day. Jesus was calling His shot. It testified to Jesus' mastery over death. Here's the gospel. Jesus is Lord of life. He rose on the third day. And what Scripture predicted, history affirmed. In the next few verses, Paul refers to numerous eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 5 begins, And that He was seen by Cephas, that is Peter. Before Peter's recommissioning on the beach, the Lord had met him personally. And what a moment that must have been. Oh, you remember Peter. He was the disciple who turned chicken before the rooster crowed. After boasting that he would never, ever deny his Lord, he did so in front of a campfire girl, no less. Peter was so broken, so embarrassed, so ashamed and guilt-ridden, the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. What did the victorious Christ say to a defeated Peter? In their first meeting after Peter's big flop. We don't really know. The dialogue was private. But we can infer from his response. Peter went from disgrace to champion of grace. Jesus must have reminded Peter what he wants to tell us. Our failures are never final. No matter how hard you've fallen, he has grace that will help you get back up. Afterwards, Jesus was seen by the twelve. Peter wasn't the only disciple to betray Jesus. What about the others? In the Garden of Gethsemane, they all took tail and ran. None of them stood with Jesus. Yet the risen Lord's first words to them were, Peace be with you. He replaced their shame with His peace. Remember the first attempt by Jesus' enemies to discredit His resurrection was to spread rumors that the disciples had stolen the body while the guards slept. Jewish priests paid off the Roman guards to spread the lie. But it was flawed from the very outset. First, if the guards were asleep, how did they know it was the disciples that stole the body? I mean, the whole spiel was a whopper of a lie. A Roman legionnaire was a fighting machine. He would lose his life for botching such an assignment. There's no way that he would have fallen asleep. And less likely would the disciples have attempted a body snatching. They didn't want to fight Roman guards. They didn't want to fight the guards that came to take Jesus when he was alive. They're certainly not going to risk their necks now that they think he's dead. The disciples were cowards. And even if they had stolen the body and concocted this ruse, what possibility, or what possibly would have been the disciples' motive for coming up with such a scheme? 
Hey, because of their allegiance to Jesus and His resurrection, they lived out their days poor and persecuted, not fat and happy. Perhaps you know the history. Peter was crucified in Rome on an upside-down cross. Because of his preaching of the resurrection, Thomas was in India and he was impaled on the end of a spear. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Bartholomew was skinned alive for his faith in Jesus in Armenia. All the disciples except John died for the gospel. And the emperor tried to kill poor John. He had the apostle boiled in oil. Miraculously, he survived. God spared him. But here's the point. A person might lie for money. They might lie for fame. But no one submits to torture and death for what they know to be a hoax. If the twelve said they saw Jesus alive, hey, they had no reason to lie or to foster a con. Paul continues. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Hey, subpoena 500 witnesses and give each person just 10 minutes on the witness stand and their collective testimony will add up to about 83 hours. Hey, in our courts, if just two or three eyewitnesses have corroborating stories, it'll send a man to jail. The resurrection's day in court would have proven to be the most lopsided trial in history. And yet still, you often hear skeptics try to explain away the resurrection as just wishful thinking. Oh, the disciples, they had a vivid imagination. They just saw what they wanted to see. It was all a mere hallucination. But this is preposterous. For one, hallucinations occur only if there's a prior anticipation. In the case of the disciples, these men had no expectation of a risen Christ. In fact, they even doubted the first reports that He was alive. When the women came with the news, Peter and John had to run to the tomb to see for themselves. You recall Thomas's skepticism. He refused to believe until he saw with his very own eyes the scars in Jesus' hands and side. In fact, Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once. By saying this, Paul eliminates any possibility that their Jesus sighting was the mere figment of someone's imagination. Hallucinations are a private phenomenon. Hundreds of folks are never simultaneously deluded. A mass sighting like this ruled out illusions and apparitions. And these 500 eyewitnesses, notice what Paul says about them, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. There are a few that are dead, but most of these witnesses are still alive. 1 Corinthians was one of the earliest New Testament letters written around 57 A.D., just 27 years after Jesus' resurrection. Paul is saying many of these eyewitnesses are still accessible. If you don't believe me, go and talk to them. Check it out for yourself. Launch your own investigation. And if any of the Corinthians had asked, I'm sure Paul would have given them names and addresses, maybe even emails. Realize, this is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. It's what the historians call falsifiable. Christianity can be verified, or it can be refuted based on real-time events, based on the evidence. Our salvation was born in time and space. You see, philosophies, metaphysical beliefs, vague promises of the afterlife, 
can all hide behind subjective criteria? Who can argue with an experience or with a promise? Say you worship azalea bushes. This is your time of year. Let's say you pray to the great azalea in your yard. Your neighbors hear you chanting, Life is more colorful for me since I trusted in you, O great azalea. I think you're a blooming idiot. But it's really just my word against yours. Christianity, though, doesn't hinge on metaphysical boasts. If Jesus' resurrection had been a lie, or just the fanciful tale of ecstatic followers, or even a carefully crafted ruse, His claims could have easily been refuted. Jesus had plenty of enemies, Jews and Romans, all with the wherewithal to search out for the corpse. All his enemies had to do was produce the body. And Christianity would have been dead in its tracks. It would have vanished in a few days. 2,000 years later, it's still rocking. Because they couldn't. For Jesus had risen. Notice verse 7 adds to this list of eyewitnesses another famous name. After that, he was seen by James. This was the Lord's half-brother. Jesus and James ate at the same table. They played in the same sandbox. I've often thought of James growing up in the shadow of his big brother. That would be tough enough. But a proud James, he just couldn't accept that his brother was God. That is, until the resurrection. The risen Christ was seen by James. Jesus' resurrection changed everything for his brother. After he rose from the dead, Jesus' identity was now undeniable. And James had to admit that his brother was the Son of God. In fact, all Jesus' siblings willingly bowed before him. And then verse 7 ends, Then by all the apostles, the last sighting of the risen Lord Jesus by his own disciples occurred on the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem. All the apostles were there, and they watched Jesus ascend to heaven. His ascension is also an ingredient of the gospel. The fact that God received the Savior back to heaven was proof that He had finished the Father's will. And He had accomplished all that He had been sent to do. The Father was pleased. Jesus had accomplished our salvation. And while we're talking about first century witnesses of the resurrection, realize Paul's list is far from exhaustive. And it isn't just the New Testament writers that lend their voice. There were secular sources at the time that also spoke of his resurrection. Romans named Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, the historian Suetonius, even the Jewish Talmud made reference to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Josephus was a Jew on the Roman payroll, the emperor's personal historian. And Josephus wrote of Jesus, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. Thomas Arnold, former professor of history at Oxford University, sums it up. He says, No one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. Verse 8 mentions one more eyewitness of the risen Christ who testifies powerfully on the impact that the experience had in his own life. Paul speaks of himself. He says, then last of all, 
He was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Several years after Jesus had ascended to heaven, the risen Lord made a special, separate, post-resurrection appearance to Paul. Before he was Paul, Saul persecuted the church. He was an angry rabbi who hated all things Jesus. He was on his way to Damascus to stamp out Christians. That is, until the Lord intercepted him. A bright light knocked him off his high horse. He was humbled. He was repentant. Christianity's persecutor became its preacher. I believe that God intended for Paul to be one of the twelve apostles. He just joined the band a little late. Pete Best was the original drummer for the Beatles. But when you think of the Beatles, it ain't John, Paul, George, and Pete. It's Ringo. Everybody considers Ringo Starr the fourth Beatle. And likewise, Paul was one of the twelve apostles. He just got to the party a little too late. As he says it, as one born out of due time. And Paul talks about his apostleship. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You could make a case that Paul was the most influential of all the apostles, but that's sure not how he saw himself. He considered himself the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle. Paul was ashamed of what he had done and of who he'd been. He was just grateful for God's grace and for the gospel. You know, it's interesting. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 57 AD. And here he calls himself the least of the apostles. Paul wrote Ephesians three years later in 60 AD. And there he called himself the least of all the saints. Five years after that in 65 AD... He wrote 1 Timothy, and he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Apparently, the longer Paul walked with Jesus, the lower an estimation of himself he had. And this should be true of us. Jesus must increase, and we must decrease. The more we know Jesus, the more conscious we are of His glory, the smaller we'll be in our own eyes. Well, Paul has talked about the importance of the gospel, the ingredients of the gospel. And now in verse 10, he discusses the impact of the gospel on his own life. The grace that saved him is the grace that changed him. Notice verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul was a poster child for God's grace. He ended up gripped by God's amazing grace. The good news that Paul had received had produced free favor, free forgiveness, free blessing in his heart. And Paul spent the rest of his days finding ways to say thanks to God. The grace that Paul received was not in vain. It motivated him to risk more to love bigger, to go further, to last longer, to do greater than all the other apostles. A lot of people take pride in being a self-made man. Paul rejoiced that he was a grace-made man. All that he accomplished for Christ, he chalked up to God's grace. I've often said, I'm hanging by a slender thread called grace, 
But the longer I do, the more I learn that God's grace is stronger than a thousand ropes. And Paul's life was proof. The grace that saves us and the grace in which we stand is also the grace that changes us. God's grace is effectual. It works in us and on us. You can't experience the grace of God and remain the same. The grace and gospel of Jesus doesn't just affect what we believe. It also impacts how we behave. Paul closes verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The gospel that Paul and the other apostles preached was powerful. I've heard it said, the gospel faithfully preached meddles with everything else on earth. The gospel turned Paul's life upside down. It turned the believers in Corinth upside down. And it'll turn your life upside down. Perhaps you embraced the gospel as a child. But since then, somewhere along the path, you've dropped it. Maybe you've heard it numerous times throughout the years, but you've always considered it as something for later. Could it be you've even flirted with the gospel at times? Whatever the case, you've stopped short of fully embracing it and holding on to it with unflinching faith. Let's remember what Paul tells us in this passage. The gospel, its importance, its impact, its ingredients. The gospel is vitally important. No other invitation compares. And it's not just important how we start in the gospel. Even more so, it's important how we finish. Faith at first can end up faith in vain. Don't fumble away the gospel before you get into the end zone. And the gospel that saves us is the gospel that changes us. It impacts our beliefs and our behavior. And finally, let's get back to the basics, to the ingredients of the gospel. Our success depends on our adherence to the fundamentals. Are we certain of these truths? Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and that He was buried And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen. If you've never prayed to receive the Gospel, or if you want this morning to recommit yourself to the truths of the Gospel, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray it with me. And so wherever you're seated here this morning, if you want to... Receive the gospel. If you want to recommit yourself to the gospel, I want you to pray this prayer with me now. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for being my substitute. I have sinned against you, but you have taken my sin on your shoulders and you have paid the price for my sin. And I thank you. And you have risen from the dead. I believe that truth. And I want you to live in my heart from this day forward. Please fill me now. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.